0: Okay, we begin today. We're going to look at the word for prayer, tefillah. And then we're going to look at a a rashi that explains three different types of prayer and what we can learn from that. And then we're going to change gears a bit and we're going to start moving into not just philosophical understandings of prayer but uh, different types of attitudes towards prayer that we can adopt and different suggestions or ideas of how to make davening more uh, relevant more alive so we start with, the word for prayer is tefila, and it's explained that the root is palel which means to judge it's connected to the word judgment so this works very well with one of the understandings we have of prayer is that it's what we call self-education in other words, through the process of prayer, we are forced to clarify what is important to us and what is not important to us, what we need to be praying for, and what priority to put to our prayers. In other words, there is a, a, a process of di- distinction in, in praying, that we really hone in. In other words, let's say we are we on the prayer for uh, rufua, healing. And let's say we're having a problem with our health. So, either we can just say the prayer and ask for a rufua, or we could take the opportunity to not just daven for a but to, in a sense, judge the situation. Whereas we <coughs> ask ourselves, well, what are you doing that could possibly leading to this health imbalance that you have? Is there anything you could be doing differently? And basically we can do this for all the persons we discussed this yesterday that, that we could dab in Esther in five minutes or less or when we get to each prayer it becomes a whole focus and not just something we're doing by rote and just saying but we're actually visualizing using our imagination and in this case judging the situation in order that in a sense we can answer our own prayers even though for sure we're directing our prayers to God but you know the famous story of uh, the person who's caught in a flood and and streets are filling up with water and so they come and they say come the streets are so passable and he says no I want God to save me. And then the water rises up. And now you can only get out by boat. And they actually send a boat. Comes right up to his house and says, We're here. Come on. This is your last chance. He says, No, I believe God will save me. And then the water goes, rises up. The whole house is up on the roof. No place left to go. A helicopter comes. And they throw down a ladder, says, climb up. Like, this is your last chance. He says, No, I believe God will save me. And then the water, like, rushes over him. He, and he drowns. And he dies. And he goes, when they go up to heaven, so he goes to the heavenly tribunal. And he asks God, I had so much trust in you. Why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent the car, I sent the boat, I sent the helicopter. What else do you want? So we can apply the same story in a sense to davening. A little different way to look at it. In other words, sometimes we think that short of hearing God's voice answering us, then nothing's happening. Right? Unless I hear God's voice answering me, then well, how do I know what's what's going to be with my prayer? But the the Ishvitzer says it specifically: the thoughts in our mind are many times sent to us. So if we're I'm just using this example that's what we started with with Rafua if I'm having a problem with Rafua and I, I take my time and I concentrate and in a sense because I open myself up to really looking at the situation and taking the initiative and I get this like flash have you tried that? Maybe I should try that. So, the fine line between God answering us and our answering ourselves—it's a very fine line. But according to the story, so it's in a sense God's sending us the thought. So all this is just to explain this idea of to feel of being connected to to judging now the infinitive lehit palel so this is also connected in grammar to a tense that means intensely reflective it means intensely reflective so this tells us some, again something very deep about prayer that it's, it, it's like a mirror image it reflects back on us and yet it demands action it it becomes very active so we have a paradox here in one sense prayer could be described as the epitome of passiveness and that's why certain people have a hard time with prayer Hashem please as if we're, we're not doing anything. As if prayer is a sign of my not willing to take any action, and I'm totally dependent on another force or God. So it, ap- it could appear to be total passive. The word tefillah itself is a feminine word, and it's a receptive word. But for a lot of people, Receptive means passive, which means negative. But of course, that's not true. On the other hand, tefillah is highly proactive. To be able to pray with your whole heart and your soul like that takes such inner strength to be able to take your full focus of your emotions and your intellect and your psyche and focus it all in prayer so that's super active so that's like heat Palel where it becomes this very active exercise and of course in Paradox What is a paradox? You have two opposite ideas or opinions that seem to be mutually exclusive, that if one is true, by definition the other one is not going to be able to be true. But a paradox says no. They can be mutually exclusive, or appear to be mutually exclusive, and they can both be true. So prayer in this sense is paradoxical. That it is both uh, the, the paradigm of passivity and of activity. And they're both happening at the same time, and they're both true. They're both true. In other words, if, if, if it's only proactive, then we're not going to stop long enough to hear <laughs> anything. There has to be that receptivity to, to hear an answer or to hear inspiration or to receive guidance. So it has to be both at the same time. Another connection, lahit Palel, is it ends with two Lamets. And I'm only mentioning it now, but we're going to get into this, is that is very close to halal. Lahit Pavel and Hallel. Hallel is is praise. And what, what we've been concentrating on and that's what hopefully we're going to break out of is the really the only prayer that is called prayer per se as we learned with the Shema Nasseri. That's the only prayer that's actually called, in the, uh, the, the technical sense, prayer. Whereas everything around it is uh, a, an extension of But those extensions become, for many people, the gateway into really being able to, to uh, get into prayer. And so this connection with Hollow we'll see shortly that, that for many people this can be the key into prayer is the, the joyous spontaneous bursting of the heart to thank and acknowledge and praise God. This becomes a, an absolute key in the process of prayer and then we have a a word that is close to the root of lehit palel and that is no to fall now this again has very paradoxical undertones and overtones because what's the paradox because the prayer we're talking about is called the Amida, which means to stand. Mm-hmm. And yet the word for Lahit has two of the three letters of Nofel. Mm-hmm. So you have a paradox like, well, how, how, how can those work together? Here you have the Amida, and here you have Nofel. So the first thing we'll point out is in the Amida itself we bow seven times. Every time we dive in the Amida we actually bow seven times. So here we already see a synergy between the idea of falling and of standing. Because when we bow down That becomes very represent representative of a uh, a falling process. We have to understand what do we mean by by falling. So usually when we think to fall is totally a negative thing. If fall, you're going to hurt your knee. You're going to get hurt. But the, the part of the prayer service that comes right after the Amida is called the Filat Apain where we fall on our face. And it was explained by Rod Ginsberg that the prayers were uh, set in that order purposely. So here we reach the very height of what's called the world of Silut in Tefillah. Get to the highest level, and then we fall on our faces. So that's, that seems very negative. You're at the top of the roller coaster, and now you're falling to the bottom. The higher you rise, the harder you fall. But he explained that, that it's purposeful, is that what... We have to get out of every prayer and every what we'll call high experience is then to integrate it in our lives. Ginsburg explains all the time that one of the problems of uh, call modern society, our culture, is the tremendous emphasis on experience For experience sake, where where people need distraction, input, um, need something to do, some thrill, some something, right, to bring some excitement. And so therefore, people pursue ever greater and dangerous sometimes. Uh, ways of filling that need for experience. Whereas in, in, in Torah, experience is wonderful, but it's not it's never for the experience itself. It's only what can be gained or learned and then integrated from that experience. So the classic case of the, the four that went into the Pardes. The four that rose in deep mystical meditation to this very high dimension called Pardes. And we're told that only Rabbi Akiva went in peace and went out in peace. And what was the difference? Is it all the others in one way or another got drawn into the experience and forgot that the whole experience was only to learn something, to experience something that could then be integrated into their regular lives. So since Rabbi Akiva had his feet on the ground the whole time, so he was able to reach that level and to go in in peace and come out in peace but one died because he was overwhelmed by the experience one went crazy also because the the experience was just too too much shattered shattered his consciousness and the other became a, a heretic because he also was so involved in, in the experience of, he lost uh, a sense of uh, perspective and became a heretic. And so, right after the Amida, we fall on our on our face. But it's not considered a negative thing. It's considered actually taking the. The high experience of the prayer and then integrated into our lives. And we can see this in a, in a beautiful teaching. It's a very important teaching. There's a myth in the Torah that when you build a new house, you should make a guardrail around the roof. In order, the Torah says, so there will not be blood on your house, meaning someone will fall off your roof and it will be your responsibility. But then the Torah says, so that the fallen one will not fall off your roof. Hmm. And the grammar is very uh, odd. That the fallen one will not fall off your roof. So Rashi says, an amazing Rashi, he says, this person is destined to fall off a roof. Your mitzvah is that it should not be your roof. Why? Because good things happen through the agency of good people, and bad things happen through the agency of bad people. So this Rashi is a classic Rashi because it leaves us with some very deep, questions here what does Rashi mean this person was destined to fall off the roof Okay, so then we get into all kinds of things with God's providence and destiny and fate but that's not where I want to take this to go I want to make just one point here though <clears throat> that on the words that this person is destined to fall off the roof so Rob Ginsburg brings from Tehillim, where David Amalech describes himself as a bird up on the roof. And it's explained in Hasidu what does the roof represent in the house? It's the highest part of the house, it represents intellect, new insight, an attempt to, to rise spiritually the son of a Rebbe connects us because we always read this in the month of Elo so he says what does it mean when you build a new house he says when you want to prepare for a new year when you want to reach a new spiritual level then you have to put a guard rail around the roof because if not you will fall off meaning That if you want to reach a new level you have to put borders around it there has to be some discipline there has to be some some mental and physical determination to carry it out in other words you have this inspiration that this year I'm really going to learn Torah. In a much more serious way than I've ever learned before. And you really feel it. Like this is going to be the year. And throughout the whole chagim, like over and over, this is going to be the year I'm going to make the change. I'm going to make time. I'm going to change my priorities. The chagim end. And you, like, what do I do now? So this guardrail is, well, why don't you just go to a class? In other words, we can have all of the intention in the world, but if we don't like, make a practical uh, design or plan, we're going to fall from that original inspiration. So the guardrail becomes discipline. Becomes making a plan and carrying it out. So Rob Ginsberg explains a beautiful idea here. He says that when a person wants to go up to the roof, meaning wants to rise spiritually, what Rashi is hinting to is, it's inevitable that you will fall off. That's just the way this world works. There's highs and there's lows. So you want to rise spiritually? Go up. Go up to the roof. It's fine. But you're going to fall. So Rob Ginswick says like this, he says, the secret is to orchestrate your own fall. What does that mean? To be humble. He said, what's the problem, this goes back to experience again, that's why I got into this whole thing, is how can tefillah be the paradigm of standing before God, but also the root very close to falling. So that's where I'm, I'm, I'm leading this. So in other words, If we go up on the roof, the roof is is an example of a high experience, new insight. We're like enthused. We're (coughs) We're ready to conquer the world. We're standing on the top of the roof, top of the mountain, top of the world. Well, how do you stay there? So, Rob Ginsberg says, you orchestrate your own fall because you're going to fall but if you orchestrate your own fall, you can still stay on the roof. You don't have to fall off of it. And that has to do with the falling is humbleness. A state of humbleness. And that was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, in this incredi- <coughs> incredible vision that they had, didn't get carried away with it wasn't like taken, taken out of his yeshuvadat, his uh, sense of stability. And he, he kept a sense of humbleness in this high experience. And therefore, he was able to go in in peace and come out in peace. So how does that relate to us? that, as we're going to see in in a minute, that tefillah is an incredible exercise of holy chutzpah. And this is what we learned the previous two weeks, because to, to get up and pray before God implies that I believe that the Master of the universe the creator of a hundred billion galaxies actually pays attention to me Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and cares about me and that I can talk to him and I believe that he will listen that's like that's like holy chutzpah That, that is the standing before God that is the standing before God at the same time it is a, it's it, it, it's an experience of, of real humbleness that if I really believe that I'm standing before the creator of the entire universe uh, what a humbling experience and it's, it's true at the same time and so therefore by Standing before God and saying, please heal this person. Please, can you do this? And please save Am Yisrael. And so that's like from a place of tremendous strength and in a sense ego. But at the very same time, if that's happening in a context of who am I really? Really, to stand before God is like I should be shaking in my boots. I should be absolutely like melting, <laughs> like like jello, if I really understood that. I think we said this, but if not, I'll say it again. That one of the Hasidic rabbis said, "Halavai." we should have the same fear before God as we do before men. Which is the exact opposite that we usually think. What? Our fear of God should only be like our fear of men? So the example is brought that if, if you were going to stand before an earthly king, earthly king, the reality is how you would get dressed up? How you would worry for like, like weeks? What am I going to say? How should I say it? Um, how much time do I have? Is anyone else going to be listening? Like, and then you find out you have five minutes, and then it's like, oh my gosh, I only have five minutes! Like. Wh- well, what's the most important thing I could say? And what happens if I blow it? And then you actually become before the king. And it's like, it's like, you're overwhelmed with, with uh, nervousness. So the Rebbe said, Halavai. Halavai. When we say Shemona Ezra, we should have the same attitude when we stand before the king.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, it's, it's both a, an empowering experience to pray, and it's totally humbling to pray. So, all of this was said to understand the connection between the Amida and that the word Lahit Palel is... Close to also no fell ok now we want to look at another word Vayigash in the parsha where Avram defends Sodom so it says it uses the word Vayigash which means to approach So says that Avram approached God And Rashi says this word that he approached is the language of tefillah. And now Rashi wants to prove it. So he brings three verses that have the word Vayigash. And in all of those instances, it also means to pray. So the first one is, he brings Vayigash Lemilchama. And he approached war. The second one he brings is Vayigash Yehuda. Yehuda approached Yosef, he didn't know it was Yosef, in order to plead for Binyamin. And the third one is Vayigash Eliyahu. That Eliyahu approached God to pray. And there, it's the, it's the most explicit that it actually means prayer. That's what Rashi says. So, I saw in, in Art Scroll, in the introduction to the Siddur, a very, very beautiful explanation of this word Vayigash and the three places where it's used. Vayigash Avram, Ayyagash Yehuda, and we're told they all mean prayer but it's pointed out that each one of these prayers is very, very different and it explains that by looking at the whole picture we get a handle on the different types of prayer so it sounds like this that We'll start with Avram's. Avram's prayer was that he was praying for justice. He was praying for justice. And even, I I, I said about Holy Chutzpah, so Avram says to God, will the God of justice, is it possible that he will not do justly? I mean, it, it bordered on almost an accusation in other words how are you going to destroy all these people in Sodom and maybe there's all these these righteous people also is it possible that you who have established the principle of justice in the world and represent justice you're not going to do justly? so this is like almost an astounding thing that Abraham is saying to him and then he ends up by saying I am dust and ashes. When he said, if there are 50, will you save them? God says, yes, 45, 40. And each time he, he says some introduction. And one of them he says, that I am dust and ashes. Like another, who, who am I to approach you? But nonetheless, I am approaching you. Here again, we have Abram standing before God, and saying, I'm dust and ashes. But he, he's praying for justice. And his prayer is, in a sense, a universal prayer. He's not praying for himself. He's not praying for any personal need. He's praying for a principle. A universal principle. And this is the first prayer in the Torah. This is the first time we see, at least explicitly, anyone praying to God. And his prayer is a conversation, which is also extremely important. That his, his prayer is as if he's in a two-way conversation. And we've already learned that this becomes the paradigm of all future prayer. That we approach God... And we speak to him as if we're speaking to another person, as it were. As it were. In other words, our prayer is not um, ethereal. It's very, very specific. God, could you do this? Could you do that? Yehuda, on the other hand, he approaches God and he's asking for mercy. Now this is a very, very subtle point because you could ask a question here. Where does it say that Yehuda approached God? It says he approached Yosef. Mm-hmm. So, why is this prayer? So, if you look in the words that Yehuda says, he says, Be Adoni. Please my Lord. Yosef, again, he doesn't know it's Yosef, but. He is the second in, in command of, of Egypt. everyone. Right. So when he says "bi'adoni," when you look in the Torah, there are no vowels in the Torah. So the word "adoni," mm-hmm. my master, can be read as the name of God. So it's it's explained that. There is a parallel discussion going on. Yehuda, on one level, is speaking to this ruler in Egypt, but on another layer, all of his words are, are, are being directed to God. Like you said, Bracha, it's like he was aware that that. God is behind this whole thing and that's how they got in this mess so that's we really need to be praying to here nonetheless he's praying for mercy and he's praying as a, as an individual and he said and he calls himself um, your servant so this is just a different aspect Avram is more he's approaching God in a universal way in. Um, on principles whereas Yehuda is very immediate he's he's approaching as an individual asking for mercy and he's coming from the place of a servant and then we have Eliyahu who approaches God as the prophet and he is asking in this case, he's asking for revelation. <laughs> revelation. He's asking for revelation. So here, if you take all of this together, it gives us different faces of tefillah. In you know, other sometimes we are dominating for ourselves and we're, we're just asking for mercy, just asking. As Rashi says, when Moshe prayed 515 prayers, that he he was asking for matanat That Even though Moshe could have said, God, I did this for you. I did that for you. You wanted me to lead the people. I led the people. I haven't had a a, a moment's rest since. I'll, I'll make you a deal. Right? you let me into Eretz Yisrael and you can take some of this food I deserve it. Rashi says Moshe didn't do that. He asked not this not based on my merits whatsoever. Just like a, like a free gift. A free gift. So sometimes we're just asking for God's mercy. Like, I, I can't tell you why I deserve it, or another person deserves it, but just, just because you're merciful, be merciful. In Avram's case, we see him praying for the whole world. He's taken on the responsibility for the whole world. The very beautiful understanding is, how did how did Avram know that he was that God was going to destroy Saddam? So, it says in the Torah itself, God says, as it were, to himself, we we have, the Torah is giving insight into God's thoughts, as it were. This is very rarely in the Torah. But God says, should I hide from Abraham? That what I'm going to do? Because in Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Because he will teach his family to walk in the way of God and keep all of my mitzvah. So it's like a chicken and the egg here. Is it because all the nations of the earth will be blessed in Avram that Avram is motivated to darwin for them? Or is it because God knows that Abraham is going to pray for the whole world, and therefore all the nations are blessed to him. It's not either one, it's obviously both. But here is a beautiful thing, because this is, remember, the first prayer in the Torah is Abraham is taking responsibility for the whole world. So this tells us something incredibly deep about Jewish prayer. About Jewish prayer. I thought it was
2: about you asking to save the people in Sodom. No. That wasn't the whole
0: world. It represents,
2: ah.
0: it, it becomes symbolic that Sodom represents, like, kind of the evil of the world. Uh-huh. And even that, Abram is dominating for. I mean, so you're right. It, it sounds like it's only Sodom. Hmm. But it's more than that. Okay. It's more than that. Because that's how it's introduced, that God reveals to Avram, He says, because all of the nations of the world will be blessed to you. And then you have Avram davening for one of the nations. But it really means He's, he's taken upon Himself mm-hmm. the, the responsibility for the whole world. It's called tikkun olam.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The responsibility to fix the world. So, that, so here we see both private prayer Yehuda, We see universal prayer, Avram. And then we see Eliyahu is revelation. And this is where this will be the lead in to our own prayers. There's a level of praying is because I have an obligation to pray. That the prayers as we've learned, replaced the sacrifices. Not just the sacrifices, replaced the whole temple service. And since there was an obligation on all of Israel to do a certain spiritual service, now that there's no temple, it has not fallen, but it has been put on each individual to now do that service. I just want to make a comment about this, that There's an expression where the in the curse is the bracha that comes out of it. So, in the destruction of the temple, well, what bracha came out of that? So, in a sense, the fixing and the bracha that came out of it was an entire transition as far as was called Abudat Hashem mm-hmm. until the destruction of the temple as we learned in the history of how a Knesset the synagogue came into to be there was one service in the temple with its destruction the, the sages did an amazing thing they said now everyone is going to be a Kohen. everyone's going to be the coin Godel And everyone's going to do the entire service. So therefore, there's a very strong uh, thread through prayer that what we are doing is we're fulfilling our obligation to serve God in this particular way, as the sages mandated, in order to create... A spiritual replica of the temple today. And that thread is is very true and very important and communal prayer is extremely important. It, it brings us together as a people. It uh, allows us to to fulfill a spiritual calling on a national level and it keeps us together as a people. But then there's a whole other aspect of prayer that also needs developing and, and understanding and that's individual prayer. And obviously the ideal is is when the individual is totally at home with their prayers in a communal setting. That's the ideal. But, as we began to talk about, and it's well known, that many, many, many people have uh, a hard time not so much relating to the prayers, but as far as actually feeling a spiritual... Uh, elevation from the prayers or, or feeling that this is affecting my soul this is bringing me closer to God that there's so much so many problems with just fitting into the technical aspect of prayer and keeping up with prayer and not being distracted by a communal setting and being kinned in to saying certain words and certain prayers in certain order day after day after day after day that this becomes very problematic for people. There's no, there's no doubt about it. For those people who are not religious the, these problems are so daunting that people absolutely just cannot get through them and therefore just stay away from Abed Knesset their whole life. Because they cannot break the book barrier, they don't understand Hebrew, they don't know what to do when they're in, in Shul, and when they're in Shul they feel conflicted and they don't know what to do. And that's it. They, they go a few times a year and, and bar mitzvahs and, and weddings and, and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and, and not, not much more than that. There's a whole other set of, of obstacles or challenges for those who are religious and want to daven um, every day. So then it's a whole other challenge. There, um, there's, there's a great amount of, in a sense, inner spiritual guilt when you've just davin mincha, And you realize, like, I had absolutely no kavana. I just said the words, and like, you feel you actually feel bad. So it's like you feel good that you did what you should do. You you know you believe that you should say mincha every day, but sometimes when we're finished, we just feel like. Like what a level I'm on! Like I can't even concentrate for four minutes, right? I mean, these these are big problems. So with the time that remains, what what I want to do is hopefully just give some ideas or some inspiration that that can help us to to get through this. So the first one is is. A verse from David Melech, where he says, "Vaani tefila, I am prayer." There's another place where he says, "We said at Mincha on Shabbos, I prayed to you, God, at an auspicious time." So there we we understand that (coughs) David. Excuse me, David says, I prayed, ani to But here he says something different. He says, the ani to which, when properly translated, means, and I am prayer. He's not saying I prayed, or will pray, or do pray. He says, I am prayer. So this, these are just two words Va'ani but this is a very important attitude or call it an outlook to have when approaching prayer in general, I guess life altogether What does it mean, I am prayer? It means Prayer is not something that I do, it is something that I am. Now, if prayer is something that I do, then there is something between me and what I'm doing. Now, what I'm doing isn't, it's an expression of me, but it's not me, something that I do. But when I say I am prayer, that means I am my prayer I am my prayer. There is no division it's the same thing that someone can experience as an artist or a musician or in almost any creative uh... endeavor Mm -hmm. is when you do something with that your whole being is in what you are creating, well, it's not that you're really drawing a picture right now or painting or making pottery or whatever it is. It is I am this action. And so, this becomes a very, very important help in trying to get beyond the boxes of what we put ourselves in as far as prayer, because what does it mean? I am prayer. It means God, I am talking with you all the time. There's not a moment I'm not ta- I'm not praying because my relationship to you is. I'm in a constant state of prayer. And so, therefore, that's why when David is on the top of the world, he's praying and talking to God. When he's in the lowest hell, he's talking to God. When he's broken in a million pieces, he's talking to God. It doesn't really matter to David because his outlook is I'm always in the presence of God. God is in in my presence. That's what we say in the um, the Tehillim that we say all of Chodesh Elo. Hashem ori yishi. It says, One thing I ask of God. Ota avakesh. And this is what I request. Shisti v'beit Hashem Call yemei chayam. Let me sit in your house all the days of my life. So, he's not talking about sitting in the Beit Midrash, sitting in the Beit Knesset, or sitting in even in the Holy Temple. When he says, let me sit in your house, it means, let me always have the awareness that it doesn't matter what is happening to me, that I am in total connection and communication with you at all times. Times. That is the need to feel The need to feel it's not three times a day, and it's not going on and doing heat to do for an hour. It's something so much more all encompassing. I am a prayer. And so, then, so, therefore, every person and the Baal Shem Tov said it in one way, Rabbi Nachman said it another way. But along with communal prayer, every person needs to develop an individual, unique, and personal type of prayer. It could be walking in nature. It could be with music. It, it's very much like do It could be through crying it could th- be through creating, it could be through meditating, that we develop the, the ability to praise God. That's what we said that the, the connection of hitpalel and halel is so important. How many people, when we say psuche de zimra, we just knock it off in five minutes? How many people just actually stop and, and, and are really thankful and really are so happy with God's creation? It's in, in, in our busy schedules and in the and kind of like the box that we put ourselves into. We lose the childlike wonder of of. Being able to praise God. So, anyone who's had the opportunity, either as an individual or a community, let's say to say hello, together with hundreds of people, everyone is singing. It. So, so you, get a, you get a taste of what that opens up in our inner world when we're just praising God. Or if, simply, we would get up in the morning and actually uh, Rabbi Lazer Brody was on the Moshav last night and he he emphasizes, And I actually did this maybe a year ago, where I found myself in kind of like a, a rut. And I was thinking, okay, what can I do to get out of this rut? So I came up with this thing about saying in the morning and to really mean it. That was like, that's what I was going to do. To start the day and it, it, it really worked, I have to say. You, know, you kind of drag yourself out of the bed, but then I was like and just really just not faking it not, you know, just really feeling it. God, I really am thanking you for giving me another day. I'm really going to try to make the best of this day. What a gift you gave me. So, we know that's what we should be doing. The question is, how often do we do it? So, therefore, to to reclaim prayer demands a... A very strong inner commitment to have a personal relationship with God. That's what it demands. Because if not, we're just going through the motions. We're just saying the prayers, and we we get points. We get points in heaven, and it's a good thing that we do. But it has to be much more than that. That's one of the biggest things that Baal Shantov came to teach. He puts such an emphasis on making our prayers meaningful. And that's why in the first generation of, of Hasidus, that's why they, they, they freaked out the Midnagin. Because... Like the Rambam says, when you want to fix a bad trait, you go to the (coughs) the the opposite extreme, and then you find the middle way. So, as a backlash against the rote kind of davening, so they were screaming and jumping and dancing and taking hours, and because like that was like the antidote. And we know in our day also that Reb Shlomo he spent 40 years going from place to place trying to teach people how to pray. Just an example. He didn't give, he didn't give classes in prayer. He just did it. Right? He just did it in a joyful kavanadic, beautiful loving way. Yeah.
2: I have a question. How important is the the Seder of the Tidura, for instance, this morning I got so carried away and took it in Sema that by the time I finished Sema, I, I had an appointment and I <laughs> so
0: This is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge because like I said, if we go to the extreme, and we start <coughs> saying every word the way we should, it takes hours and hours and hours. And not everyone has hours. So we have to find the medium balance. We have to find the, the balance of, it's very important to say Shema in the morning and say the, the Amida and the Zemra. It's very hard to say, well, only do this and not do that. See, it has to be some measure but the important thing is is that when a person feels like I'm losing it here meaning I have no Kavana here that's when a person has to like take a hold of themselves and at that point it doesn't really matter where the rest of the congregation is in other words, you need to salvage your Daveni. Well, if you're praying, if you happen
2: to be a woman and you're
0: praying, alone. Okay, so then, that's a different, different set of opportunities and obstacles. Why? Because many, many people have a hard time having Kavana on their own. Other people, it's just the opposite. They have a very hard time having Kavana in a group setting. And it, it, this is hard because they're both important. Well,
2: also because yeah? if you're in a group setting and they're dominating much faster than you, and right.
0: you're running to job
2: in really, really fast, like barely get the words out to keep up with them, or you're on a different prayer altogether and you're given that, so it's very hard when you're singing <coughs> or the people are saying something and you're saying something totally different and like I have a hard time concentrating on what I'm saying like keeping my words right not even like thinking about what I'm saying but just saying the right words because I'm hearing one thing and I'm saying something else and it's I have a very hard time doing okay. what so
0: the only thing I can suggest is there has to be degrees again there's an ideal the ideal okay. is one knows Hebrew and one doesn't need a translation and one even knows the the depths of the language and can extract from it you know, deeper meanings and one can keep up with the kahal and not lose their inner kavana so that is the, that is the ideal but still, after that a person should have their own vehicles of private prayer not, not instead of communal prayer but in, in, in addition women are definitely uh, in a, a, a different category than men right. even though women certainly can come to the Beit Knesset every day and daven three davenings and there's uh, not only nothing wrong with it it's, it's meritorious but most women don't do that so they have a different set of challenges with prayer but what I'm proposing here is different different ideas to, to stay focused in your relationship to God because what happens is that we can't lose the forest for the trees if the, prayer, the prayers are, are to help us get close to God and if the prayers start to become an impediment to getting close to God then we need to, like, make some changes. Now, one of the most important things is to learn about the individual person. This is extremely important. How? There's many, many books, many, many classes where you'll study the Shema for a month and, and learn the philosophical the historical the spiritual the mystical levels of the shema and the three paragraphs and all of their implications this is so important i've i have i have done classes like this in fact at uh, at one women's seminary i taught an entire semester just to sitter and these were religious girls religious their whole lives and they had never really learned about the individual prayers. They learned the order of the prayers and then they were expected to pray. And they were, <coughs> they were 18, 19 years old and they didn't really know what any of the prayers meant or what the sages wanted us to get out of it. So this is a very, very important. It's like any other mitzvah. But somehow people don't think about this. Hanukkah is coming. So, the assumption is, the more I learn about Hanukkah, the more I learn about the laws of lighting the candles, the customs of the candles, the mystical meanings of the candles, the more meaningful it will be. So there's, even though there are exceptions to this, but the the example is, is, if you go to a museum, and there's a Van Gogh on the wall. Sunflowers by Van Gogh. It's probably worth $40 million. Right? And you bring a teenager in. Right? And he's walking to the museum. He looks at the sunflowers. Cute. Right? They're so yellow. And he walks on. Right? Two minutes later... He has someone who's in an art appreciation course. And he walks by, or she walks by, and says, oh my gosh, that is the original sunflowers from Van Gogh. It's in my textbook. I can't believe it. He would, it was in 1887 in southern France. It was springtime. And he was hanging out with these other artists. And he did it. And it took him two days. And knows the whole story? And he's standing there for an hour. Right? I can't believe that I'm looking at Van Gogh's sunflowers. And they remembered the rest of their life. But this this is a metaphor for how we approach um, Torah we, we do mitzvahs all day long but have we learned about the mitzvahs? we learn to do them right? we learn to do them but can you imagine someone who who really learns about the meaning of the lights of Hanukkah so when he lights the Hanukkah candles he wants to sit there for like a half an hour to stare at them and meditate upon them and had all these ideas and and it's inspiring him and everything and there's someone else who, who it's very good, the miracle, the lights and the Maccabean and we beat the Greeks they light the candles and, when are the soups coming out ready? where are the latkes? so it's the same thing with prayer we, we pray the same prayers all the time, but ha, have we ever actually sat down and learned the Shema Nasser? And learned the Shema? And learned the different cities of B'Zimra? Learned Halal? Learned the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah? Like, what a difference. What a difference. This, this is a, a huge way to make davening more real. The other thing that we've, we've talked about but now we'll emphasize is joy and music and singing and prayer. The word for prayer to equals 515. The word for shira for song, equals 515. So the rules of gematria are if two words have the same gematria they have a deep, intrinsic connection when David and Melech composed the Psalms he composed them as songs they were all songs we read them as, as poetry or, or less than that right it's just, as prose <laughs> right but he composed them as songs. And this cannot be emphasized enough at a communal level or an individual level. Everyone has their own inner song. Their inner cadence. Their inner nigun. And we, we, sh- we, we should apply that to our prayers. And we should let the prayers create a, a, a it's a chant it's this, this repetitive meagland that we sing the prayers to that is uniquely us, is uniquely ours and if if we're davening in, in a community during the week hopefully there will be a solution to this someday also But it's very, very hard to find anywhere in the world that is going to include song and music during the week. But at least Shabbos and Yentav, if you're davening with a community that doesn't have it, there are plenty that do. And so therefore, if this is like an impediment that that the prayers are just, they don't move me, they, they just seem dry and, and, and boring and dead. So then find a community where it's different. There's enough minions around now, Baruch Hashem, that in many cases you can do it. Sometimes if you're in a little place and there's only one minion, okay, it's not so easy. But, Kalbach uh, is, davening has spread everywhere. The, the, the straightest shuls now have once a month Karl it's Bach It's just really everywhere. It's just everywhere. And there are people who, you know, make little minions in their house now if they, if they can't find it in the community. I'm just saying that uh, for many people, this is such a hard thing is, is to feel that the prayers just are not joyous and I just, I'm not inspired and, and I know it should be so much more what I'm saying is there are opportunities now and, and sometimes you have to walk a little bit farther and make more of an effort but it's, it, it's worth it and the more people who make the effort and make these kind of minions uh, successful the more they will spread the more they will spread there's no, there's no doubt about it. So I said that do something a little bit different. So in a, a few other classes, what I've been doing with, with with the music is that after we learn, we take the last five minutes, and I pray, uh, play a new and everyone meditates on what we just learned. Rabbi Nachman said we should take our Torah and turn it into tefillah and we should take our tefillah and turn it into Torah. In other words, what we learn should then become a prayer in our heart but also what we pray we should know the, the, the depths of of the meaning behind it, we should turn our out into Torah and to see that in, in the order of the prayers, the prayers themselves are such incredible beauty and meaning and depth that we have to be able to unify individual unique prayer and communal obligatory prayer. And sometimes the emphasis is on this, and sometimes the emphasis is on this. But we need both. We need, we, need, we need both. So everyone can just visualize or think about, first of all, this idea the I need to feel up. I am prayer. Because everything follows from that as long as prayer is an activity that I do it's somehow outside of us once to feel it becomes who we are then it changes completely it's just a completely different experience and we should all be blessed to be able to open our hearts and our souls, our minds and to really reach out to Hashem, to feel Hashem's presence in our life, and ultimately to be happy with the creation, happy to be alive, and to want to praise God for all of our blessings.